Before we get started, I want to tell you about the sponsor for this week's episode. AB Jets is a great story and great company. I'm not exactly flying around on private jets during this stage of my life, but if I were, I'd be calling AB Jets. They're one of the safest private air companies in the world. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years, which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. AB Jets is one of the largest Lear 60 jet companies in the United States with nonstop access to most destinations around the U.S. Efficient, clean, and easy to work with, AB Jets is an experience that gets you where you need to go on time and with no hassle. Go to abjets.com for more information and book your trip today or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S. Ken Bennett, who was leading Streets Ministry at the time, started introducing me to people that he knew in the neighborhood that were looking for a job. Then I said, okay, let's get in the car. And I literally drove around to different businesses and relationships that I had from church and said, hey, will you work here at this roofing company? No, I'm afraid of heights, okay? We went to the next, you know, restaurant. No, I hate restaurants, okay? Hotel, you know, yes. And so I was just kind of life on life listening and there was no set curriculum at all. My guest today is Steve Nash. Steve is the founder of Advanced Memphis. Advanced Memphis was founded over 20 years ago when Steve had it on his heart to help men and women find financial stability through work, and this is still what he's doing today. There was no elaborate plan, and I won't spoil the episode, but Steve's work started when he left his job and started driving his grandmother's Toyota Camry, picking up people and driving them around the city to find work. Currently, there are 34 million people living beneath the poverty line of the USA. I'm blown away by Steve's honesty, his hope, and how he talks about his neighbors, where he serves, and more. This was a -a one-of-a-kind episode where we cover why dyslexia has taught him perseverance and resiliency. What are the deeper needs we all must have to thrive as people? What's the price of a human being? How he and national organizations are using mental health to make more of an impact with their work and more. Over the last year, I've come to admire more and more the vast uniqueness human beings have and the different interests and causes people dedicate their life to, along with the impact they hope to make. This episode won't disappoint. To help you understand some things referenced in this interview, my guest today is out of Memphis, Tennessee, and the zip code we're talking about today is the poorest financial zip code in the state of Tennessee. And in 1999, it was the third poorest urban zip code in the country. I hope this helps as we move through the conversation and this provides some context. Please enjoy this week's episode with Steve Nash. Steve, great to see you. Thanks for coming on. Sure. Glad to be here, Sam. Thanks for the invitation. You bet. So I'm curious to get a little context. Some of this is limited. I know you started Advance in 1999. What'd your life look like prior to that? Well, I was I was married. Uh, we had two little girls. We were living out east, and we were pregnant with our third uh, daughter, Elizabeth. 
And uh, so, you know, lived out east, went to church out, out east, shopped out east, and, you know, volunteered in the city, just as I had done in high school and college, you know, did some inner city tutoring. I was my father at Neighborhood Christian Center, also volunteered at Streets Ministries, um, where Advance now owns their old facility, and it's our office and where we, you know, teach our classes. So, you know, life was pretty much in the suburbs and expecting our third daughter. What kind of drove you to to get involved uh, in a city in your spare time with these organizations? And I know maybe a lot of fair amount of people won't know these organizations. I'll explain those. But what was kind of ticking with you at that point with this? Well, I, I think in high school, uh, I graduated from White Station High School, public high school here in our city. I, I participated in Young Life. And so that's a non-denominational high school Christian outreach ministry. And um, in college, I wanted to be a young life leader. And so I've got enough of a rebellious streak that the majority of folks, when they were asked, do you want to do urban or suburban? The majority were doing suburban and I raised my hand for urban. And so that kind of set me off on a trajectory in the city. And I think prior to that, you know, my mom and dad would take us down uh, Christmas morning The way that worked was we would come down to MIFA in our city and deliver meals on wheels before we would go home. So I think I came from a family that was looking to serve and had some introduction to the city. But then I think some of my um, was just the majority was going one way and I decided I want to do this. And so I started volunteering at some of these nonprofits in the city. And then you know, I get into business and started in sales. And so worked for Hardin Cisco here. And then, like I said, MCI and then came back. But I also had a dad who um, wished that he had, you know, gone into business for himself. And I was unsettled and I was being encouraged to start a for-profit business. My brother was in business for himself and still is today, uh, but it didn't resonate with me. I didn't get excited about growing profits exponentially. What I got excited about was starting a for-profit business and turning the majority of the ownership over to the employees and taking a minority position and that being sustainable economic activity. And some of that, you know, Sam grew out of, I go to Second Presbyterian Church. And so my church split home and world missions and the home mission speakers that I was listening to, I heard one of them, um, you know, talk about some entrepreneurial things that they were doing in Chicago. And I just um, started moving down that road. And Sandy Wilson was a senior pastor at the time, and he advised me to get a a board of advisors together. And so I started working on a for-profit business plan. And I thought, you know, I had these high aspirations of um, doing construction site cleanup. And so started, you know, putting that business plan together. And when it wasn't coming together because I wanted to provide health insurance. I ended uh, with a friend, Bubba Halliday said, well, why don't you start a nonprofit where you're volunteering and, um, you know, create jobs and and get folks employed and start businesses there. And so that's kind of the heart and the journey to saying yes and ending uh, working in for-profit business on Friday and starting from scratch on Monday, Advanced Memphis. So your father, so you felt that at an early age, 
you had heard maybe some regrets, probably is not the right word, but some hindsight 2020 that your father had said about starting your own, his own, and you felt like that was implanted into you. And then you had also seen your brother and you said that didn't excite you. So I guess what you're saying is early on, you wanted to be an entrepreneur, so to speak, but you wanted to do it differently and you didn't want it to have the same structure that most everyone else has. Is that correct? That is correct. But I also would say, Sam, that it has taken me a while to realize and to embrace that I am an entrepreneur. So I agree with you, but I don't think in the beginning, early on, that was driving me. And it's taken me uh, a while to, to realize and to embrace Yes, I am an entrepreneur. So like you didn't feel good enough or you didn't feel smart enough or what, what do you think was the root behind it? I can, I can identify with maybe the smart piece being dyslexic. I have studied and taken a lot of tests and failed them. And so that I can connect to, but I don't know that maybe I didn't know personally entrepreneurs and I just didn't um, I, I was able to connect with serving others and having a um, an organization or a structure that allowed me to do that and I think I was more focused that was primary and that was coming also out of my faith and and so you've got to have a structure and a way to you know, receive money and pay bills. And so that became the 501c3. The, the entrepreneurship piece, that was what was occurring, but I don't think it was what was in the front of my mind that I am starting a business and I'm going to be employing people. What was driving things for me was a vocational calling that I felt was serving in the inner city. So I think you know, Oz Guinness in a book called Calling or the Call talks about a primary and a secondary calling. And so that secondary calling vocationally, I was looking at um, creating a nonprofit to, to, to serve others. And I think I, I was more locked in there than I was to the word entrepreneurship, although that's what was occurring. And then at some point on this journey, I was like, oh, wow, yes, I, I, I am entrepreneurial and I, I am an entrepreneur. You felt that it wasn't your motive to be an entrepreneur. You felt it wasn't your motive to build some business. This was just a way for you to do the work that you felt was on your heart to do. And I don't want to put words in your mouth, but it almost sounds that you're saying you almost felt unworthy, I don't even know if that's the right word, to be an entrepreneur or to like try to plant that flag or kind of broadcast that, I guess. And you were just focused on the service piece of it and helping other people. Is it that you didn't really care what it was called? You just felt like it was time to go. And and that's how things got started. Is that true? Yes. And I, I think that's probably the tension in, you know, humility, pride, confidence. And, and I think you're touching on, you know, just I think we all have a a marred identity. And I think it's um, I think some of this also in going back allows or what I've seen is some healing and, and some things that 
uh, God is um, restoring and putting together in my life. And so I think the uh, unworthy or the not smart enough, those things, I think there is a wound that I have that I'm in a different place today than I have been over the years from childhood. But I mean, when you are putting forth effort and the grade comes back and and, it, and it's, you know, you've failed it again or you've, you know, passed, but you're not making A's. It has been a real gift to me and um, and a blessing. And, um, and, and, and I think, you know, somewhere in here, Sam, because maybe I don't see my self as I did, I can, I will, you know, if you will, man-centered. And again, you know, understanding that the audience has a, a wide range of, of beliefs in their faith. For me personally, um, this road has been one where it's very easy for me or I, I constantly am seeing what the Lord is choosing to do through me and others and just being faithful and present and, and um, trying to give expression to the living word of God. And so it, it's hard for me to uh, look at myself and, 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 and talk about what I've done. I can't, I can't really do that because I think that I'm made in the image of God and God has given me gifts and talents and I'm just being available and faithful and, and trying to, return those do what the lord's placed on my heart to do and 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 so i, I don't know whether that there's enough clarity there in my answer in in interacting with your questions yeah no no there's clarity i mean just to bring that clarity to light and you can correct me but it sounds like you've been on this long road and also these experiences early on where you almost didn't really feel um confidence or charisma to brag or to be prideful in your own capabilities with certain things and then also being dyslexic and certain things being very hard or difficult to, to accomplish or experience. And so this whole time, you've just been following this path or this calling, right? feeling totally dependent on a higher source. In, and, yeah, indeed. And you're saying that it's really 20 years in and you're starting and you're still experiencing clarity and confidence, not in your own really abilities, but the path that you're on for a reason. And it sounds like you're starting to experience more freedom in that uh, to continue on and kind of keep working to provide an impact in whatever that needs to look like in the future. I mean, is there, is that a fair summary of what you said? Yeah. And I, and I, you know, when I read scripture and it says pride comes before the fall, I'm not looking to, you know, fall down and, and blow it. So uh, I'm cautious there. And but yes, that that works. And I think there's also a, you know, some of this uh, journey has been one in regards to looking for, um, you know, solutions and looking for answers and, um you know, I think in the past three to four years, really beginning to understand how powerful and important mental health is or our emotions. 
And I think our Western culture is very fixated on where you went to school, what your IQ is. And so as far as the whole person, that's part of me, that's part of you, that's part of others that are listening. And so in regards to, um, to that, I'm finding that um, that is very important to deal with in individuals' lives. And when it's not dealt with, we get stuck in places where there's a lot of effort and money and resources being put forth and, and there's not a lot of outcome and fruit. And so that's a current place where I'm really pushing in personally and organizationally. Yeah, I think we'll come back to that. And I assume okay. that and I assume that you're saying that's intertwined into work that you're still that you're seeing what needs are for the future. Is that true? Correct. Yes. To go back a little bit, I appreciate you talking about very grateful for you talking about dyslexia. I, I don't know if that's something that's easy to talk about on an interview like this or not, but I'm very grateful for your honesty with that. I'm curious. There's a couple of things I'd like to go back on, but one of those would be, has it been very hard to spend 20 years on an organization like Advance that you have now where you felt confused at times or you felt not an entrepreneur, whatever that may look like, especially when there's so many ups and downs, I would imagine. Has that been, would you say chaos? Has that been uncomfortable? Has it not been a big deal? I just can't imagine the emotional experience of doing something that's so hard, so impactful, but with so many different variables. What's that been like for you personally? Another part of of me is I have ADD. And so dyslexia and ADHD are two components. And so as far as being, you know, diagnosed with ADHD, that was as an adult and that's been within the past 10 years-ish. So... I think that the self-protection that I, my coping strategy has been not to go to the mountain, not to go to the bottom of the sea, ride the middle. And going back to my father who taught me men don't cry, I don't agree with my father and, and disagree on that. And I also find comfort in, you know, Jesus wept. And so again, going back to my faith, if that's good enough for my Lord and Savior, it's good enough for me. And so some of that um, strategy of riding the middle, and then also with dyslexia, I think one of the gifts of that has been resiliency and perseverance that it has instilled in me and determination. And so facing something hard or lonely or unpopular with starting advance in 99 from scratch, you know, and, and being in sales, I mean, straight commission sales, you know, feast or famine, or so some of that um, of my life experiences up to starting advance, I think prepared me, but some of this riding the uh, middle and not feeling things I think there's been a cost to me personally. There's been a cost to my marriage. There's been a cost to my children. And so that is where there's been some real growth in 
reading Permission to Feel by this Yale professor that came out recently, reading The Body Keeps Score, and just really beginning to value and understand that if we don't unpack these things and process these things well, it brings a lot of, it, 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 it stifles economic growth, personal growth, relation. I mean, it just, um, it's a huge interrupter. And so that part of allowing myself to emote and experience um, the highs and the lows with my neighbors, that's been hard. But along the way, I guess, also, I look at having ADHD and the sense of um, work here is very different every day. And um, on some level, I think that ADD has facilitated and supported some of the entrepreneurship and um, and some of the challenges and not staying focused right there. And something else grabs my attention and I go and listen and serve and support and, you know, work on something. So it's, um, that's been my, my journey. Is there a connection to the strife, so to speak, of being dyslexic that you feel that's given you a heart for the people that you serve and in the zip codes that you serve? Yes, I would say yes. But I also, aside from dyslexia, when I volunteer doing youth ministry, I am built to where I see the I see the one person who is not a part of the group, and I move to that person to engage them and bring them in. And so, I, I do think it has um, allowed me to connect and, and been and been valuable. And I think it also has. Um, maybe been a governor or it has been um, in regards to, I never really hit in corporate America, you're a supervisor, you're a manager, you're a director, vice president, director, and off you go. And then, and so I think um, the dyslexia God has used that to steer me and prevent me from, you know, some other things. And I, I don't know exactly what that has looked like, but yeah, it, it, it connects. But I think I also, um, I think what, what connects more with my neighbors in South Memphis is, you know, there's just some common denominators that anchor me with your entire audience. And that is, I hold to everyone is made in the image of God. I hold to everyone has gifts and talents. I hold to no man is perfect. You know, we're, we're all sinners and it's God's unmerited grace that we're saved by. So I guess that just allowed, you know, there's some um, brokenness and just in respecting others. I, I just can listen to different opinions and, respect you and, and, and treat you with dignity because I believe that you're made in the image of God. And, and, and that's very dignifying to con contemplate and, and believe. So those would be the common denominators at the foundation that the, the reality of the relationships that I have, I mean, as far as 
who's pulling the trigger and on the news and in regional you know, drug and gang activity. I have a relationship with some of those men and women and also with men and women with educations that are top-notch in our nation and connected to Silicon Valley wealth and just multimillionaires themselves. Like, and, and, and how does that, how do, how do I make sense of having that breadth of relationships? Well, it's with those common denominators that I just said that I, that, that anchor me in the way that I talk and listen to people. So we haven't talked much yet about the original work. And is it true, I guess, in 99 when you started? So you envisioned a workforce development program that taught the gospel to these men and women in the zip code 38126, which is the poor zip code in the state of Tennessee. Is that the context? Yes. So you started from scratch, calling friends and family, pastors, whoever, telling them what you're doing, and you just started raising money and then got some space. Can you talk about like the very beginning, just a little bit about the early days? Like, what did that actually look like? Sure. I can, I can tell you that on Monday when I drove into the neighborhood with my Toyota Camry, that was my grandmother's uh, blue. uh, I had a plastic filing cabinet in the back and I just started meeting folks and Ken Bennett, who was leading Streets Ministry at the time, started introducing me to people that he knew in the neighborhood that were looking for a job. And so I would, you know, meet Sam and I would ask you, you know, if I could, you know, help you find a job. And you said, yes. And I said, okay, let's get in the car. And I literally drove around to different businesses and relationships that I had from you know, church and said, hey, will you work here at this roofing company? No, I'm afraid of heights. Okay. We went to the next, you know, restaurant. No, I hate restaurants. Okay. Hotel, you know, yes. And so I was just kind of life on life listening and there was no set curriculum at all. And while I'm doing that, yes, I am um, beginning to invite folks to financially support. And so at this time, I mean, I've, you know, Donna's at home and Catherine and Elizabeth and Ann Bennett are there and I own a house. And I I did not start this with a dollar. No one had, no one, Sam had not said, Steve, here's a dollar, go. And so, you know, the uh, fiduciary, you know, for us early on while we were getting our 501c3 was the Community Foundation of Greater Memphis. So, Yes, I was building relationships, meeting people, driving around, going to businesses, and at the same time, going to the P.O. box and looking for donation dollars. And so um, I can tell you, 22 years in, there's only been one week where we have started on Monday without payroll for Friday, and we made payroll by Friday. And so the Lord's provision along this way of raising money and grants and churches and businesses, it, you know, God's never provided the same way twice. But early on, it was I'm meeting Sam and then serving Sam, asking questions, listening. And over time, we began to put, you know, 
structure and programming and it and it because you can't grow without you know a foundation and walls and or scaffolding i mean you just um and so that's um been our journey and so at one point you know i realized we needed a, a curriculum and we needed to stop and you know learn something and then go apply it but i wasn't going to write a curriculum that that wasn't that wasn't me yeah. and so yeah. when i found you know jobs for life in raleigh north carolina and they had a curriculum i was like all right i did you know and it's faith-based i was like i'll give that a shot but they said you've got to you've got to do the whole city of memphis and i was like no no i'm i'm community-based i'm i'm focused on a particular place and uh they changed their methodology and i said let's go i'm ready and uh we started our first class on a monday with five or six folks and by friday the class had dissolved i mean nobody was in the class and i just showed up again stubbornly persistent and started another class and <laughs> eventually it um it took off and 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 one of the things i did which we see a lot in our culture is you know i incentivized i you know, I said, okay, here's the time clock. I took $2,000 and I said, I'm going to pay you minimum wage to be in class and you're going to get paid on Friday and clock in, clock out. And, you know, you're late X number of times, you're out of class. And when the money ran out, if you will, I had, um, I had some um, street crud. I had some you know, <laughs> successes and, and, we never went back to paying folks to be in class and um, you know, people were starting to go to work and work and, and then others wanted, you know, to do um, likewise. How many years did it take to get some of these processes in place from those early days that you talked about driving around in your Camry, picking people up? How many years did it take to kind of get some processes in place for this stuff? And on staff would be the best one. But the first place where we really had, and this is also a situation, uh, Sam, where there wasn't any curriculum that was contextually that, that worked for us. So from like the faith and finance and, you know, financial literacy, you have curriculum for, you know, the middle class and for white. And, and so and we cobbled together, you know, a hybrid and made a curriculum for that. So I would say it was probably we were, you know, two to three years before we began to have the first and the second, you know, of, of that structured curriculum. And it may have been may have been longer than that. But the very first was what Ann put together with a money management curriculum where she was pulling from different sources to create something that that she was then contextualizing for us to use. And then the jobs for life, I don't know whether that was three to five years in before we before we had that. I'm not I'm not really sure. I got you. And how many people have come through your program at Advanced Memphis? Well, you know, the different programs, I think you're, you would find a different number. And, and some of the folks, Sam, come through and then they come back later through another, you know, so the same person would come more than once. But it is over a thousand folks that have graduated from the work life 
uh, which is the soft skills job training, and before work life, which we co-published that curriculum with the Chalmers Center, you know, it was called Jobs for Life. But then what's the number on faith and finance? How many have graduated there? I don't know. And, and we also teach launch, which is the co-starters curriculum, which is an entrepreneurship curriculum. And we, you know, in a year, typically we'd graduate, you know, 20 folks. But since the pandemic, we haven't taught that class. We've just been supporting our entrepreneurs. So one person goes through several of those classes over time, but, you know, the largest program, and it's probably, you know, somewhere in the 1,200 to 1,500 folks have gone through that um, work-life soft skills class. And why stay community-oriented? What made you early on not want to get out of one or two zip codes? I think it takes a long time to build a relationship and get to know, you know, someone. And so by being present, you're also communicating stability and you get to meet, you know, parents and siblings and cousins and families and grandparents. And and then, you know, several people in my family have done Advanced Memphis and a Jobs for Life. And so you're talking about code switching. Well, I know what that is because I went to Advanced Memphis. And so I just, I think that environments are very powerful. And so the the biggest determination of kind of what your life is going to look like is your zip code. And so our zip code does not have favorable outcomes of, of what your life is going to look like. You know, when you are um, in multiple locations, uh, the support that we can give to an individual, it gets diluted because it takes time to be behind a windshield to drive all the way over here. And um, so community has been very important. And I also think that the local church is a community. And so I, I believe in um, the local church and just the power of relationships. And I think that um, if I jump from place to place, it's hard for me to get for folks to get to know me and I can hide and escape things that I really need to deal with in my life if I'm going to move forward and grow, you know, maybe with something in my health or educationally or economically. So I just, um, I have found it really valuable to be in community and be in, be in a place for a long period of time. Just kind of off the top of your head, what would happen to, 38126 if advanced didn't exist? I don't know, Sam. I, I, I guess on one level, I would say our staff, some of them have lived in the neighborhood in the past that have been on staff and some do presently. And so I think some of the things that we are doing, we see our city, you know, doing through, you know, different governmental you know, through workforce investment network. Well, you know, going to the WIN office, when coming out into the community, building relationships, their structure is not, you know, like that. It is, you know, folks in South Memphis or in Claiborne and Foot Public Housing going to the WIN office. And so that's a 
a different relational experience. So the community wouldn't have experienced the, you're present at my door, you're present on my street, you're present at night, you're present on the weekend, that relational component of, I see you, you matter, I love you, building trust, the community wouldn't have had that. And that's harder to get when you're going into, you know, an office building and having to get to that location and you have a meeting and then the next person comes in. It's just, um, it's a different dynamic and, and what that what that means to the community looks like, doesn't look like, I don't know how to give expression to that. Yeah, so what you're saying is, you're the only organization that you can think of in this context that is deeply rooted in the community that's in, in the zip code it's in, building relationships and the barriers of access or driving anywhere that's, that doesn't exist. You're right there in the, in the center and you're building relationships all the people that are involved with advance. And so people feel loved, they feel valued, they feel appreciated. And then therefore, they're, because their hearts and lives have been touched, they're more inclined to be receptive to the things that your work, what you're trying to teach. And then therefore the impact is higher on that specific zip code because you can't standardize a lot of the things that you're saying. Is that what you're saying? Yes. You said your wife's name was Donna? Yes. What was that like if, if you're open to sharing from a marriage standpoint? You know, it's no secret that anybody starting a business, anybody changing careers, you know, husband and wife can be oftentimes very different from a risk tolerance, from comfort stability. And I know that looks different in a lot of different ways, depending on just kind of the, the life that someone has. But I mean, this sounds insane driving around in a Camry, starting, not knowing. You said y'all haven't missed payroll ever, and there was only one Monday that you didn't know that you had money in the bank for Friday, and you just said you feel provided for, that God has provided for y'all. Can you talk anything, like, was she on board with that decision? Was that incredibly hard? Can you talk about that from a marriage standpoint and how that's been flushed out? When Elizabeth arrived in February before we launched in May, she had colic and she had lungs and was not a great sleeper. And so Sandy Wilson's wife, Allison, was gracious enough to give us some relief and would take Elizabeth and, you know, love her. And Allison, out of her love for us and the gospel, you know, asked Donna, you know, is Steve equipped? And so there were some very real, you know, hard questions being asked that needed to be asked. And it's, you know, it was out of love that are y'all making a mistake? And is this, is this it? And I remember being in bed and um, I cried and it took me, I don't know, felt like three minutes. It may have been 30 seconds, but I, you know, through tears said, I believe this is what the Lord is leading us to do. And I also believe that if it's wrong, there is life after trying. And she was like, okay. And so, you know, we went and, um, you know, counsel from Manny Ortez up in Philadelphia, who is doing inner city work, said, take your wife and your family along with you. And so Donna and the girls would come down once a week and they would have lunch. And then we would walk 
down to the corner store and buy a piece of candy just to begin to connect this. But in regards to my heart being in this, my mind being in this, being at home, but being checked out, that has been very difficult. And I have not done that well. And that has been costly. And Donna has made a huge sacrifice and investment and been faithful and, and committed and has worked here. We have left Second Pres and gone to church here in the inner city with our girls for a couple of years. So she has been in and on board. And so I have done, you know, counseling, and I think it's very important. We have done counseling. I've got some of my children doing it, and I'm thrilled with that. My son is 14. Our son is 14. No, but I hope he will do it. So I mean, in regards to the it's hard and yet learning, you know, some of this is me learning who I am. I mean, I, I had no idea how much, you know, ADHD to a non-ADHD spouse, those are different languages. That's a different dance. And so there's been a lot of learning about my mind in the brain and the neuroplasticity of it and just dyslexia and ADHD and how I communicate, how she does. So it's been a journey and I feel like we are more actively learning who each other are and valuing and, um, you know, she's on board. And, and, and again, you know, this is like, I look back and I see things that God has done. I can remember being in her Mazda 323 Red in Bartlesville, Oklahoma, when we were engaged. And she made the statement of, you know, I could see you one day in full-time ministry. My wise response was, what? No, no, no never. And you know what? So she, you know, saw something before I saw it in myself, you know, and I, I would also, you know, kind of go back to early on your comments about, you know, entrepreneurship and say, you know what, that's what was going on, but I didn't really understand entrepreneurship and that I was actually, you know, doing that. <laughs> sure enough, that's what was going on. So it sounds like 20 plus years ago, 21, 22, you just started, you jumped in, you started picking people up, driving them around. Three or so years after that, y'all started to put some operations in place. Soon after that, we hadn't talked about that from a curriculum standpoint. If you had started over again tomorrow, and maybe this is where emotional health comes in, what have you learned about this work that you and your team are doing? It's a, it's a good size ministry. It's a, I read a $3 million budget and you got a lot of folks and there's a lot of support in the city. What do you think you've learned that is most important that you think will be crucial for the future for the next five to 10 to 15 years? Because it sounds like the work that you're doing, it could only be done by somebody like you or others that want to go in. It sounds like a, a big investment for a smaller amount of people from a, if you look at a data standpoint, but obviously you can't, and I'm not speaking from advice here. I'm just speaking from an out of observation, but you, how do you quantify the price of a human being? And it sounds like you are locked in and have never wavered on trying to do whatever it takes 
to get to the heart and the soul and love of the human being within the reach that you have in the zip code. So I'm curious, what have you learned and what maybe would you have done differently now that you know that, that not from a regret standpoint, but what's going to be pivotal for your work for the next five to 10 to 15 years? You set me up very well to, to move into this because when you raise the question of the value of human life, that I think is destroying our nation and world. I think our value of our of humanity and our fellow man is extremely low. And, and that grieves me greatly. And so, I mean, my wife is in grad school at CBU. And this morning we had the conversation over the Pinto car, which when it got in a car wreck, sometimes it turned into, you know, a fire because of the placement of the gas tank. And the reality of what it would have cost before that car ever went to production and was on the street to have corrected that mistake was very low dollar. I mean, it was it was like a two dollar fix and and or two hundred seventy dollars, but we didn't do it. And and there's a dynamic where as far as valuing the production and getting it out the door over humanity and the value of human life. And so I think that what I have learned that I would do at the very beginning takes me to this book, The Body Keeps Score. And in this, this author has gotten, and this was written in 2014, a Nobel Peace Prize for ACEs, Adverse Childhood Experiences. And so if I had understood this earlier, I wouldn't be so excited to have this week just gotten a $45,000 grant from the state to work with Frank Jemison Jr. and access consulting on ACEs and trying to be more ACE informed as a staff and volunteers and be integrating that and teaching that in our curriculum and giving those skills to our graduates to take into the marketplace, et cetera. So I would have been on and into this earlier on because uh, hurt people hurt people, trauma people hurt, you know, traumatized people. And I mean, I just think that this also, I would have doubled down on these foundational pieces, which as far as who are you and, you know, what's your identity? And, and whose are you in gifts and talents and community? Because if you'll indulge me for a second in this epilogue, you know, it starts to state and ask questions like, who really knows you, loves you, and cares about you? Whom can you count on when you're scared? Are they members of the community? Do they play vital roles in your life, people around them? Do you have a sense of purpose? What are you good at? How can we help them feel in charge of their lives? So I think this content and the last, if you'll give me just a second, I'll read just two other sentences that I think yeah. pull together what I'm saying here. And that is people who feel safe and meaningfully connected with others have little reason to squander their lives doing drugs or start staring numbly at television. They don't feel compelled to stuff themselves with carbohydrates or assault their fellow human beings. 
However, if nothing they do seems to make a difference, they feel trapped and become susceptible to the lure of pills, gang, extremist religions, and violent political movements, anybody and anything that promises relief. And so I just, the sense of, if you will, if I live in South Memphis, who cares, what does it matter? That is where I would maybe have have brought more focus and attention to how can we unpack this to get a different view of ourselves and begin to you know connect to healthy community which currently and have tried to give expression to from a faith standpoint of connecting to the local church but i think when we don't feel like anybody cares about me it's it's amazing how powerful how, how much that impacts us because i can think of a man who I knew and advance was the first thing he'd ever graduated from in his life. And when he was in middle school, our middle school, he had a teacher who said, you'll never amount to anything. He left, started stealing cars, working the street and, you know, in and out of jail and successful leader. And so I would be working on the dignity and answering these questions and getting into um, the fact that you do have a purpose and you've got gifting and connecting to community. And so we've been working on that, but I would, that would, um, that is capturing uh, a lot of my attention and trying to give expression to that today. Hey everybody, we're going to take a quick pause here from the show and hear a word from one of our sponsors. After that, we'll get back to the show. Do you want to make efficient use with your time? Now more than ever, traveling hassle-free is harder to find. AB Jets is one of the safest private air companies in the world with impeccable service with nonstop access to most destinations around the USA. AB Jets has received the prestigious Argus Platinum rating the last eight consecutive years which goes to less than 5% of operators in the world. Bypass the hassle and get an AB Jets jet card that gets you 10 or 25-hour flight options that makes your experience hassle-free. AB Jets carries up to eight passengers and is one of the largest Lear 60 operators in the U.S. Go to abjets.com for more information or call them at 888-520-JETS. That's J-E-T-S, to travel on your own terms. What I'm picking up from what you're saying is you're continuing to position, advance, to pour into, to use the relationships that you have with the people in in the zip codes that you're a part of, but to actually have professionals that can pour in, understand, love, connect with, and then try to build up in a healthy way to to where people are equipped to navigate the day-to-day experiences that we all have in a tough world with tough work, et cetera. This is where I'm so excited about Frank and his profession and knowledge to do the consulting and use this money with this grant that we've been given. So we will be outsourcing to learn these things. And I think what I have already learned from Frank are some very practical tools that we can implement, staff can implement, and then 
We can also have our warehouse supervisor, manager. We, we can be imparting this into our neighbors. So I won't be pursuing professional degrees. And I also think that this needs to be more practical and applicable immediately because we have had a licensed counselor and she was here five years, part-time, very competent. But in our culture to here to get someone to move into counseling and, and open up and share, that's a long road. And, and so going back to my dad, men don't cry, and then thinking of even full-time staff and the fact that advance will pay all of the counseling for as much as you want to go to, except for $20. You put 20 in, we'll pay the balance on 75 or $125 an hour. But to get staff, full-time staff, and a culture that embraces that and there's not shame in that, that has been quite a journey. So I think this will be much more um, layman. And I have seen Frank give us already some tools that are very practical and we can apply. And I think our grads can take it home and apply with their family and children and nephews. From a number standpoint of hearts and people that come into your program, you're saying that you feel it is more valuable and beneficial to each person and then also to each supporter to incorporate each person's emotional well-being and the work that it takes for someone to feel loved and appreciated and valued, that that is more important than anything before they're going to be placed with a job. Because if they get placed with a job for any of it, I mean, I can speak to my own experience here in certain ways and people that have been very, it's been a, at a very pitiful time in my life come in and help me see things that I can't see and help me feel appreciated in certain ways. And that's been more significant than anything else in my life, you know, to continue on a path. But I guess what you're saying is it's not good enough just to try to be a workforce placement company, or it's not worth good enough just a job, so to speak, You for things to work and for things to stick, you have to get to the heart of the person. Is that what you're saying? We are not going to successfully get a permanent job and keep a permanent job and grow in our wages if we don't go down deep and get take care of this. Okay. So when we have someone who's spent over a decade in jail and, you know, has been out for a while, is in a halfway house, very hard worker on time and you promote to working with other people as a lead, and we're not working as a team, can't get there, and then um, you are not at work on a Monday. And so, you know, relapsed as far as on, you know, drinking. And so you go, you go to a bar, you start drinking, you buy a lady drinks, you know, give her money she doesn't bring her change back and come with a drink your her drink back to you well then that triggers you and you start you you beat her up and you also tear up the bar and you go to jail well when you get out of jail and i've got staff that sit down and you're not allowed to go back to work sam 
until we sit and talk and you start asking questions and listening, that walked all the way back to being a child and never feeling, you know, started talking about dad, started talking about mom. And I've never been able to do, you know, anything and all my effort, nothing matters. And like, until we get in there and that get, we start to unpack that and that get, we get healthy there. We're not, our communication with team members and leading and wages, we're not going to be able to hold, hold that job. And so if it, if, if we had been the employer, you'd, you'd be unemployed. And so I think this is where I'm saying these things being dealt with, our emotions are really powerful. So fear of conflict, you know, we got we to gotta deal with these things. Yeah. Part of what I get to do, I get hired by companies to do interviews for internal podcasts or other types of interviews for companies, whether it's a, you know, celebration, it's a acquisition or it, just a wide variety of things. But I get to do a lot of interviews and I get to have these 30, 45 minute, 50 minute conversations with people around, around different parts of the country. And the companies pick the people that I interview and usually it's a CEO or it's a, you know, somebody in a high level leadership position. And then it's different people throughout different ranks of the company. And I get to, I get to see the transcripts because I have to use those transcripts or my team has to use those transcripts when, when we produce each episode, et cetera. But I've just, I've been blown away since I've been doing this work to understand the people that are usually most valuable to a company are people that a grew up on a farm or doing some sort of manual labor where they learned at a very young age from their parents or a grandparent to do manual labor work. That was not fun. Uh, Farming animals, you know, shops, warehouse, things like that. The second thing is, Almost every instance that I can think of, a relationship with a parent, a family member, where they felt loved and it was the backstop of that moment to get through incredibly tough times, you know, was one of the most significant things that these people could reference when they were in over their head or going through a divorce or whatever that might be. So I guess what I'm hearing you say is, these are the things that you've seen over and over and over again with every relationship that you've made in the zip codes that you're in, these are the things that you see. And that's the only way that really true change can happen for someone's life. And Sam, that's what you've just described is what we do. That is what staff does. That's what we, if you want to call us a surrogate parent, surrogate friend, I mean, that gentleman who, when he showed up, you know, after he'd missed work, no call, no show, what two staff people did was exactly what you're talking about a grandparent or, you know, family doing. That's, that's what we do. How, if you not look through your, the people that go through the program, but if you just look at how many relationships you've made over the last 21, 22 years, would that be 4,000? Would that be more than that? A little bit less? What do you think? Oh, I, I, it's definitely in the thousands. Yes. And, and the problem is I'm not, I'm not good with names and, and everybody knows that, you know, <laughs> I've probably forgotten your name. And so 
but yes, it's in, in it's, it's more than we can steward or keep up with. And so we make effort. We have volunteers that we're encouraging building relationships and trying to delegate and, 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 but yes, it's, it's thousands of folks that we have met. Looking to the future standpoint, is it incredibly concerning to you that as a society, things continue to be more globalized, technology continues to be more emphasized, unemployment and workforce turnover, for example? Like, I mean, there's a company that I know of and, you know, 75% of the frontline workforce turns over within 90 days. And, mm-hmm. and I mean, the, the numbers are staggering, but... And you look to the future and you look at companies investing in robotics or, you know, continued sophistication with machinery to keep up with earnings or, you know, projections and all these things. I mean, is it easy to be depressed about the future and what things are going to look like because of what you see that's needed and what you're doing that is effective, but how hard it is and how it's the opposite of scaling, decreasing, focusing in, doubling down when, you know, maybe you're a one in a million, uh, your group's a one in a million that wants to operate that way in, in today's times? Yeah, no, I do. I do think about it. And where I draw comfort is I do question where are the opportunities to work? Well, when I go back to Genesis in the Bible and God has created us and designed us to work, I don't know, but I do know that I believe that is true. So there's going to be something for us to do work-wise. I'm not depressed. Do I carry a lament? And am I actively lamenting what I am seeing? Yes. Do I think it is sustainable what we are doing? No. And I think it's coming faster and faster and it's coming, you know, apart. And, And I think that if you were to look at is there value in place and you know small business if you will when you think of chick-fil-a and the consistency in the product you know i find myself going hmm that may not be a bad strategy to allow you to own one franchise so if steve buys one i can't buy two i'm only allowed to have one and I've got to work in it. And so, you know, that leads to a different, you know, that place is going to be healthier than if I owned 10. It's going to get a little more complicated and harder to keep that all tight and neat. So, yes, it concerns me. And I think that this is also where our value of humanity is very low. And so, Work doesn't work for the majority of us. And so we're working and yet I'm not able to pay my bills and and and, and we're not we're not interested in getting into the mess as far as people's lives and, and wages are important, but it needs to be we need to be looking at wages and because where we are currently with what we're paying, we still do not have the labor force present and, and, and we've got open jobs. And so it's complicated. It's very complicated. But I and I think the um, I think the pandemic has pushed us away from each other. And I don't think we're built for isolation. I think social media 
pushes us into ourselves. And I don't think that's how we were designed. Yes, we do need time alone to refuel. So I think there are, I, I think we're going to have a reckoning with this because if you have the money, you're not going to be able to get the service or the product that you want. And, and we're already experiencing that. And so, yes, we're going to have to get into loving our fellow man and whatever lens we want to look at, whether we want to look at it through, do we have the physical health to work, the education to do the job? I mean, it's, um, it's complicated. It's very complicated. So you're saying really the only thing that gives you hope in the future is Genesis, because every other indicator that you look at makes you see that there's going to be significant problems. Sure. And, 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 and so because I believe that when the fall came in Genesis, everything's broken. And so when I look at systems and individuals and I look at myself, I see that brokenness, which gives me compassion and humility for my fellow man. But I think that we're going to have to stand up and, and have some leadership. And I think some of the lack of leadership is rooted in we're afraid, fear. I mean, so this is where I'm just, I'm learning how powerful and destructive emotions are. Because if you are into the Enneagram, I'm a nine. A nine is afraid of conflict. Well, if I'm not going to communicate and I'm going to try and manage things and never have a discussion with my wife or with you, Sam, or what, I mean, you know, that's that's not going to lead to health. We're not going to get very far in a relationship when I'm gripped with that fear. And so we sold 66 percent more guns last year. What drove that fear drove that? It wasn't that I lost my gun to go shoot a deer or quail hunt or, you know, I'm not a hunter, but so I think we're going to have to listen to people's stories and get in the mess and engage and ask questions as to whether life is working for you. And if you're not happy, what are you willing to work on to change? And we're going to have, and it's going to be slower than we want. And it's, it's going to be highly relational and um, it's going to take time. Are your donors patient slash excited from the standpoint of figuring out 20 plus years with clarity that there's got to be more investment into human behavior, meeting human needs, walking people through change and transformation to be in a better position to have economic opportunity for themselves and their families? Advance has been supported through the pandemic. If you are supporting, if you are looking at advance through our numeric results right now, you are looking for another place to put a dollar. We used to have classes that would graduate from the work life that would be 15 graduates. This Friday, we're either going to graduate one person or two out of a class that was three. So I think that there are uh, donors that believe in work, believe in our mission, 
and over 22 years uh, have seen faithfulness and have seen change, whether that being the ultimate change that we are thrilled when the Lord, you know, when somebody comes to faith in Christ or goes to work or has aha moments with managing money or, you know, has accomplished learning how to drive this big, heavy piece of equipment, a forklift, and are now in the marketplace. So I think folks are looking at us and they're looking at, you know, advertisements to go to work and they're looking at their own company or where they work and seeing that we're not getting the talent that we need. Folks aren't coming, folks aren't responding, folks aren't staying. So I think it is, so I think we're in, unfortunately, good company in regards to, we're all wrestling with this and, and, and we're, we're all, we're all struggling with it. But I guess my, I mean, the only reason I said that, or what made me say that question is, you know, I know of a very large organization. It's just from a crime standpoint around the country, they've completely changed, you know, meaning like traditional ways of, of handling things are not working. And that's obvious through the data. So it's almost, to me, it's interesting to hear your perception, your perspective, these thousands of relationships, these 20 plus years of just starting with a Toyota Camry and driving relationship to relationship where you felt locked in on this work. But now you're talking about the continued work psychologically, emotionally, spiritually with the people that you have to expand those efforts. But then I also think about certain organizations of national scale that are raising money using data to try to essentially do the same thing that you're talking about around the country to be proactive about the mental health and emotional stability of people from a crime standpoint as well. And obviously we're talking about workforce here. We've talked about the needs that we all have as human beings emotionally and to feel loved, to feel valued, et cetera. I guess I was just curious, is that not somewhat exciting to a certain degree if you feel like you kind of see now what's going to create the most impact. Yeah, Sam, all, all day long. Yes. And, and what I am, with, what I am realizing is the fundamentals take you a long way. And so what is encouraging me is our city's crime. You now have, I can't think of the name of it, but there's a name, Pat Lawler with Youth Villages is the CEO and he is wanting to see Memphis crime reduced. And he is spending $3 million and a lot of his time out of youth villages to address and attack this. And Pat will tell you out of his own mouth that he thought the answer was more police. He will tell you today, he does not believe that is the answer. He has looked nationally and he's looked at Compton and other cities where he's seeing crime go down 40 and 50%. How are these cities doing it? What is going on? The answer is they are targeting folks that are you know, in jail that are being released tomorrow with regards to where are they coming home, who's talking, and let's make sure that we're getting the services that we need, we're engaging. And so it's localized and it's holistic. It's what is the health, what's going on educationally, employment, where are you living? 
and it's high touch. It's highly relational and it's localized. And so when he shared that with me, I was very encouraged by that. And so when I read out of this book, The Body Keeps Score and the epilogue and what happens when you feel like nobody cares about me, you know, I don't matter and I'm not in a safe place, then you don't care if you drive 100 miles an hour on a residential street and hit something. I mean, you know, whatever the situation is. So it is encouraging me to going back to earlier in this podcast when you asked me, does place matter? And so, you know, this answer to crime is where is there trusting relationships and who are the community organizations in the neighborhood doing, if you will, wraparound services, targeting those that are creating the most ruckus or, or crime. And it's it's working. And I just and on some level, I also think that it ties beneath the the aces and, and this work on um, this book in regards to understanding you know, you have value and, and people know you and care about you and you have a healthy community. So when I when I get when Pop calls me and I have that conversation and I hear that on a national level, what people are doing and having success with. And when I hear Pat pivot from more police and he's had some very painful experiences with violence with people that he knows. And so that does encourage me. Does it feel that you're back to year one? No, I don't feel like I'm back at year one. I Maybe I feel like I'm not crazy and that um, it also is one more encouragement to me that reading the living word of God, like this is truth. This, you know, we can use whatever vernacular, but on some level it comes back to Oh, guess what? You keep going down and, huh. So for me, it, it, it's an encouragement to the Bible teaches that community is really important. And, and yet, you know, I'm reading this book and I'm listening to Pat and we're working on crime and holy smokes comes back. You know, we're talking about community. Do I have value? Does everybody have value? Yes. Oh, well, that's not new. You know, I mean, this <laughs> is so that encourages me that God's word is truth. And um, so that's encouraging to me. And it also is encouraging that being place-based and respecting my fellow man and my neighbor and listening, these are fundamentals. And I just believe in the fundamentals. And so whether we want to look athletically, uh, why does a coach win, win, win? I can tell you those players if we're talking about basketball, they know how to play both sides of the court and they are doing the fundamentals consistently and they can beat more talented teams. And so on some level, I believe the fundamentals, as I said earlier, are we are all made in the image of God. We are all uh, sinners saved by God's unmerited grace. And we've all been gifts, been given gifts and talents. And those fundamentals allow me to be in relationships with very wealthy people and folks in the street that are doing things that break my heart. And I have uh, a relationship, you know, and, and not that they agree with me and I agree with them. 
that's not the case, but we have relationships and we can communicate and, and love each other and agree to disagree. Have you ever wanted to quit? Oh yeah. When those, those days come, my job is to uh, drive an 18 wheeler and be by myself, you know, and Donna knows that. And um, the, the great news, Sam is I bet you over 22 years that's happened like five times. It does not happen often. And Scott Crosby handed me the microphone at our 10 year anniversary with the community and some other staff. And uh, I gave remarks and he'll never forget, nor will other people, because it was like, oh, well, that was really uplifting, Steve. You know, I said, hey, why don't y'all stick around and let's grow old and die together? So, like, <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm, um, it doesn't come often and I'm here for the long haul. And, I, and, and early on in my career, when you were asking me how many years I worked in sales, Donna will be married 30 years uh, this May. And she wondered, I mean, the goal was, can we just get you to one job for five years? I never made it before this job. I got close with four years and some odd months, but this is the first job and I, I am very humbled. I am very grateful. And I have learned a lot, a whole lot from South Memphis. And, and I mean that deeply. They have taught me proof from God's word that I missed. And I can tell you, they have taught my wife and all four of my children and all six of us are very grateful for these relationships. And I hold, uh, I, I value and advance values, reciprocal learning. And so it is not come listen to me or other staff, whether we're black or white or male or female. Uh-uh, we are, we are all here learning from each other and it is reciprocal. And um, that's a big value for Everybody's dignity that walks through this door is very important and we value it. And we also value and try and create a culture of reciprocal learning. Sometimes I hear a fair amount where a founder of a nonprofit or a founder of a business, you know, you just hear where it's time for them to, to move on or take a different role, et cetera, because it's outgrown them or because just having the right skill sets, et cetera. You know, obviously, your story and your heart, it sounds like there's no question about it, your desire to do things, for things to happen that way. It just doesn't seem like it was made for it to happen in the other way. As things continue to evolve, or as you've tried to button things up or see things that need to be buttoned up or et cetera, or you look to the future now where you talked about this grant that y'all now have and incorporating this more of this work into your organization. How do you think about yourself? How do you think about your role for something that you love so much? And then also thinking objectively about the organization itself and what's best for it. Just as somebody that founded something with such a story, with such a history, is that something you have to reevaluate? What's that been like for you? And, and do you know of others that struggle with the same thing? Yeah, I think that is coming into focus you know, being 58, what's the succession plan? How do we do that? And I think what 
has the potential to hold me in to this role longer is continuing to embrace the gifting of volunteers and welcoming that and listening. And so I hope that I can keep a posture and the humility and a growth mindset and be open to pivots and and that coming from the talent that's within the body of Christ. And so I think that will give me some longevity uh, or some more time here to serve, but it is time to start preparing. And I think that will be, I think that'll be very difficult. And so I, I don't, I think it'll be difficult emotionally and I think it'll be difficult to execute. And so I think about it and, and starting to, you know, work on that. And, you know, the person that I guess I've seen, um, you know, walk that, maybe that road, the closest is Ken Bennett. And that, that has not been seamless since he stepped out as the executive director. And so I've watched that. I haven't been on the board you know, I'm not looking to be on the board, by the way, Ken or Streets, uh, but I um, I have seen that struggle and I've seen him step back in and work. And so I've got a, I've got a lot of learning to do, you know, and, and I, I don't know that I'll do it as well, worse, better. I have no idea, but it's important. And, and, uh, and I'm hopeful that there will be succession and life after, you know, my death, uh, whenever that day comes. I can't imagine how hard that is. I can't. I asked that question one time to somebody and they almost, they said, you know, if you would ask, they named somebody else. They said, if you would ask them that question, they would have shut the interview down. So it's always interesting Mm -hmm. talking to somebody that's so passionate, so wrapped Mm -hmm. up, so Mm -hmm. caring so much about what they do. And, and you can, you know, you just hear stories of people where they hold on and, Again, Sam, it's not mine. Yes, I am the founder or the executive director, but this is not mine. This is, um, I believe this is the Lord's and I'm stewarding this time and these relationships. And that's, that's the center. That's, that's my focus. Yes, sir. Your humility is, uh, it's incredibly impressive just hearing you kind of hold that with open hands. Last question I got. For your community, for the folks you work with, for the relationships that you and your associates love, what do you dream about that Advance May look like in 10 or 15 years? And what do you what do you dream that the zip code that you're in, the people that you have such deep relationships with, what do you what do you dream like that community looks like as well? Well, I guess I I dream um that when you go down a street and there's a house and then there's a vacant lot that all the vacant lots would be filled and that we would have a reverse in rental to home ownership ratio. The majority of the homes would be owned. The other thing that I would uh, dream over is, and this has just occurred this week and it doesn't have signatures on it, but this is just where the relationships from top to bottom, God has brought us into some relationships that are amazing. And so, Right in front of you, this is the first contract that we have assigned for with a business for a one-year commitment to do business that's renewable annually. And so I would uh, just say that 
you know, working for companies and having contracts where there's work and commitment, the labor here in South Memphis and the commercial real estate and the warehouse space, that that would be vibrant. And so we would have local jobs, local homeowners, you know, and we would see folks going to school locally and getting the education, playing sports, going to church and worshiping locally. So to see things localized, I just, um, it's hard for me to work on this macro level. You know, in Washington, we can't set a water policy for the whole nation. I just, that does, I can't, I can't comprehend a discussion like that in regards to we have desert, we have mountains and, you know, water doesn't function the same and we don't have the same needs. So I'm hopeful to see things strengthen locally uh, for my neighbors. As we wrap up, you got choked up earlier when you were talking about what you and your family have loved from your, what you've gained from your neighbors in a mutual understanding Right. Is there anything that sticks out to you the most that you feel that you've taken away the most up to this point when you're thinking about yourself, your wife, your kids, and what you've learned from your neighbors? I guess um, that I can learn God's word from everybody and that I have also learned that out east, we are not as generous as we are in the city or in South Memphis. If I am at the store buying coffee and I'm short, somebody in the store is gonna pay the balance of my coffee. If I'm out East, that's not gonna happen. I can think of it happening one time out East by Tim Threckle's mother and she paid for it at Steverson's Big Star. I was buying cookies when I was in college and I was short. But other than that, I've experienced more generosity. And so that has stood out to me, which is also very humbling. And I have also just experienced, and I think my family has experienced, our world has expanded. My family believes in the kingdom of God, but our our exposure as citizens in Memphis has been much smaller until we moved to Midtown and until I started Advance. So that has been a real, a, a real gift to all of us. Hey, everybody. Since you've made it this far in the show, I want to share with you something that you may love. A few months ago, I was asked to interview a close friend's grandmother who's in her 90s. She lives outside of the United States, and this is a way to get to the heart of her and capture her life in a way that could stay with the family for generations to come. This interview was an absolute blast, and it brought tremendous joy and value to this family. Since then, I started doing this for others. If you have someone you love or know of someone whose story and life you'd love to capture in an interview, then go to drivenbypodcast.com and send me a message. My team and I would love to discuss this with you further. Finally, thank you for listening to this week's episode of the Driven By Podcast. If you enjoy the show, please leave a review. Please subscribe to the show and you can follow me on social, on Twitter and Instagram to join me for future episodes of the Driven By Podcast. Hope you have a great week and see you next time.